Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Kerry Curtis, Chair of the Club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum and a member of the Board of Governors, and I will be your chair for today's program. I'd also like to welcome our radio audience and remind everyone that you can find us on the Internet at CommonwealthClub.org. Our speaker, Fred uh, Krupp, is a, one of the most prominent members of the environmental uh, leadership of the country. Uh, he's president of Environmental Defense Fund, a United States-based nonprofit environmental advocacy group. Uh, uh, Fred is a, a native of New Jersey and is a graduate of Yale and a law degree from the University of Michigan. And in fact, he's taught environmental law at both of those places. Prior to joining, to joining the uh, Environmental Defense Fund, Fred had a career as an environmental lawyer and, in fact, was the founder and general counsel for the Connecticut Fund for the Environment from 1978 to, to 84. And then in 1984, he joined Environmental Defense Fund and where he is now the CEO. Uh, he has been well known for the uh, practice of using markets to solve environmental uh, problems and in particular worked with, uh, in his role at Environmental Defense Fund, he worked with McDonald's to convince them to get rid of the polystyrene and to, get, uh, to reduce greatly their use of antibiotics. And he also worked with FedEx to get their environmental footprint down. Um, so uh, in addition to being a CEO of the Environmental Defense Fund, Fred serves on the board of the H. John Heinz III Center for Science, Economics, and the Environment, the John F. Kennedy School of Government Environment Council, and the Leadership Council of the Yale School of the Forest and Environmental Studies. He has served on the President's Advisory Committee on Trade Policy and Negotiations for Presidents uh, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Uh, Fred lives in Connecticut with his wife, Laurie, and their three children. And now, my pleasure to welcome Fred Krupp. Thank you, Carrie, and good afternoon. Um, Earth, the sequel. Some have asked about the title. Earth, the current story we all know. Warming temperatures, melting glaciers, rising sea levels, dying coral reefs, strengthening hurricanes. It's kind of like watching a slow-motion horror movie, sci-fi horror movie. The sequel is going to be different. It's going to be more like an action-adventure movie because it's the story of how we get ourselves out of this fix because surely the end of the story we cannot let the end of the story be uh, that this other movie just continues and I've come to believe even though I was trained as an environmental lawyer and thought I would spend my career hauling polluters into court I've come to believe that environmental lawyers and the government will have a critical supporting role to play. 
and that the starring role will actually be played by entrepreneurs and engineers. So let me tell you a little bit first about how I got the idea to write this book and what the process of writing it has led me to conclude. In September of 2006, I was listening, mostly observing a conversation between John Doerr and some other entrepreneurs, uh, venture capitalists actually, talking about the entrepreneurs that they were investing in. They were talking about the fact that the European Union had just adopted a carbon cap and trade system in advance of Kyoto even going into effect in 2008, and how that was beginning to send a weak signal that there would be a price on carbon and opportunities in this space. And other entrepreneurs, uh, other venture capitalists actually were talking about enterprises they were supporting, solar cell companies, uh, companies that did low-tech things like capture hog waste and capture the methane and destroy it to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions uh, from hog manure. And it began to come together in my head that these were the earliest pieces of evidence that the world was going to be different. There would be all these new investments. And when you watch someone like John Doerr, who's bet right a whole series of times on Google and on Amazon, saying that this is the next big thing, um, those puzzle pieces were beginning to come together in my mind as something that was going to happen once and only once government gets the policy right. And it seemed important then to share this vision with people, partly so that they might participate in this vision as citizens to help bring it about, as investors to help bring it about, but partly because in my 30 years now of working on environmental problems, I've come to understand that the one biggest problem we have in bringing about change is that people have become so convinced that the world is in deep trouble, that the problem has become so overwhelming to people that many have gone into kind of a debilitating depression. I mean, feel like we, we may as well just go out and have a, a glass of beer or a second, because what difference does it make? What I'm here to tell you now, that we can have a glass of beer or wine or two and celebrate the future because we are not resigned to this horrible future. Now, when I say that, I want to quickly explain as I hope I've already highlighted, that it is going to take government to do something very important. It's going to take government to, in essence, fire the starting pistol to get the race going. Because right now, the entrepreneurs that I d describe in the book and the venture capital that's being amassed on the sidelines doesn't really get deployed in earnest until government fires the starting pistol to start this great race. And by firing the starting pistol, what I mean is to end the current situation where we can just throw global warming pollution into the air without any cost or consequences. The current situation in the United States is kind of like this. If we were in the business of collecting garbage and could dump it 
in the Presidio, I'm afraid some people would. And that's what we have in the United States. We're the last developed country where there is no law. There are no regulations, no standards, no limits whatsoever on dumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And so people do. And that creates a very unlevel playing field because the solar cell manufacturers and the solar thermal manufacturers have to compete against fossil fuel that can be burned, the garbage thrown into the atmosphere, with no cost consequences and no limitations. So the first and most important thing that the government has to do, as California has done with AB 32 and as the northeastern states have done at least with respect to the utility industry and as some other states have done, is we need nationally and internationally to set a limit overall on the entire economy of how much of this pollution can be dumped. And that limit doesn't stay at one level. It declines. It ratchets down over time, eventually getting to near zero or even zero because that is what is going to be necessary in order to solve this problem. In addition to setting a limit, in the book we call for a uh, Miriam Horn, my wonderful co-author, and I call for a a cap-and-trade system. And I want to briefly explain what that is in theory and then give one example. Um, The cap-and-trade theory, as many of you probably know, is... uh, is a regulatory system where the government does exactly what I've just talked about. It sets a legal limit. And by the way, we have not solved any air pollution problem anywhere in the world without putting a legal limit in place on how much pollution can be put in the sky. So the first thing the government sets is this legal limit. And then it sets up a trading system where if companies can reduce their emissions... Um, to the extent that they can sell some of the credits that they have, they can sell into a green market and earn a profit, whether the companies have acquired those credits uh, through an auction or whether they've been given them by the government. However, they have credits. If they don't need them, they can sell the extra ones into a green market. And so it sets up a system where if you put more into the sky than the number of credits you have, You have to pay more, and there's a real price on pollution. But if you can figure out a way to soak global warming pollution out of the smokestacks or even out of the air, you can earn these credits. So it creates a financial incentive to do the right thing. The first example we have that in this country was with sulfur dioxide, where the government said initially we need a 50% cut. And the companies that were able to do more than a 50% cut got to earn a profit for the first time in environmental law. The profit motive, which, let's face it, has gotten us into this fix. Because when you, when you let people throw pollution to the sky, it's more profitable just to do it. But for the first time in environmental law, the cap-and-trade system on acid rain created a situation where the profit motive was aligned with the innovations we need. And so sulfur has been reduced from the skies by 50% in this country at 10% of what some predicted. In fact, um, two years ago, 
uh, the then head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Mike Levitt, worked with EDF, the Environmental Defense Fund, to order an additional 70% cut in sulfur emissions nationwide under something called the Clean Air Interstate Rule. Why, in this administration, which has not been good on global warming, why did, in 2005, they decide to order an additional 70% cut on sulfur dioxide? I would submit to you that because that first 50% cut turned out to be so cheap because we had unleashed entrepreneurial energy, therefore, the controversy had been taken out of the issue, and therefore, you know, Mike Levitt was able to uh, get through the current administration an, an additional 70% reduction. Okay, so those are the basics um, of the policy we need. That's the basics of what the government needs to do in firing this starting pistol to start this great race. But to imagine what will happen then, we need to look around and see what's already going on even before the government changes the incentive so rapidly. One of the things going on um, is that there's a lot of entrepreneurs now anticipating that this will happen, seeing that the world needs it, believing that the government will demand it and citizens will demand it, and already working in this space. So we have people like, well, like Bernie Carl out in Alaska. He bought the China Hot Springs Resort 60 miles northwest of Fairbanks, and he was faced with a $1,000 a day bill for diesel electricity just to keep um, the place in electricity since it's way off the grid. And he had this vision that he could get even more tourists to come if he could build a hotel made out of ice. One problem, summer came after he built that hotel and it melted. Um, Forbes took notice. Uh, usually you want publicity if you're in the resort business, but I'm not sure he wanted this sort of publicity. Forbes called it the dumbest business idea of the year. <laughs> but Bernie was an American entrepreneur. He was willful. He wanted to build this ice hotel. He had the vision, and he had the idea that he could do it with the lukewarm water in his supposedly hot springs. And uh, he teamed up with a dog sledding engineer named Gwen, who had run the Iditarod twice. And they figured out how to run chillers that have uh, kept the hotel frozen. And people have flocked from all over the world to see his hotel without any additional um, bills for energy. He's generated it from the lukewarm water. The next thing he wanted to do is get rid of that $1,000 a day bill for diesel oil. And he said, you know, I'm going to make electricity out of this lukewarm water. And every geothermal expert in the world told him, no, can't be done. The water is half the temperature that's necessary in order to generate electricity. He was willful, and he said he was going to do it. And you know what? All of his electricity is now generated by electricity. He teamed up with the United Technologies that heard what he was up to. And the end of the story is not only that all of his electricity is generated without one gram of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere, all from this geothermal. The end of the story is United Technologies is now exporting these generators all over the world. 
the analysis of Texas alone is that there's enough oil wells there. The other thing that comes up in an oil well is warm water. There's enough warm water in those oil wells, according to um, David Blackwell at SMU, who's a geo, one of the leading geothermal experts in this country, to eliminate the need for 13 big new coal-fired power plants. You could just put these generators in the wells, says David Blackwell, and United Technologies right now is very much pursuing that opportunity. But it doesn't stop there. Um, entrepreneurs seeking a buck are anticipating this need, anticipating demand, and they are working on things. Uh, Conrad Black from Innovolite has come up with a way to liquefy silicon, not the expensive purified silicon that's in short supply because it's needed in computer chips, but the cheap unpurified stuff, essentially sand. He's figured out a way to liquefy this stuff and basically um, where it can be just painted onto surfaces like roofing tiles. So then, instead of uh, needing a big box with a glass panel to install on top of the roof, it's particularly tough to do in places that take snow because then you have the weight of the big panel and the weight of the snow, and a lot of roofs can't be retrofitted that way. Um, Instead of that, you just apply a new roof when it comes time to replace the roof, and the roof becomes... Uh, the solar panel, saving a lot of energy. So Innovolite and many companies like it are working in the space to take solar cells that have been too expensive and make them less expensive. A problem with solar energy, and we talk in the book not only about the solutions but also the problems objectively that each of these technologies face, a problem is in storage. Whether you're talking about solar photovoltaic or solar thermal, The sun only shines part of the day, so how do you store the energy? And um, one of the uh, um, scientists we talk about in the book from MIT is a woman named Angela Belcher who has figured out how to get viruses basically to line up and form batteries. Um, It's using bioengineering to um, develop a real innovation in the battery space. I don't know if it will work, but I know that these um, inventors are pursuing some really neat things to solve these problems. We describe in the book also solar thermal, which is probably um, um, another answer to the storage question because it's much more expensive to store electricity once it's converted into electricity than it is to store hot water. We're all familiar with a thermos bottle. And um, what Ausra has in mind is um, heating up water and then storing it overnight in in, um, molten salt formations or perhaps in compressed air. And so um, they have now contracted with uh, many of the major utilities in this country to build uh, these installations. Uh, The company out of Australia, incidentally, which initially started by building a contraption in the garage A lot of entrepreneurs seem to start in garages. They had an unusual problem, though. It was so big they couldn't get it out of the garage. Uh, They found a way, though, and have come to this country in force, backed by uh, Kleiner Perkins and Vinod Khosla and others. There's many innovations we describe in the book. Energy efficiency is one of the lowest hanging fruit. 
energy efficiency. There are systems now that are being developed so that each of us in our homes and in our businesses can monitor which appliances are using how much electricity and then make deliberate decisions about whether it's changing out light bulbs or um, doing something with our, our televisions. We talk some about that low-hanging fruit. Another thing that we discuss in the book, which isn't in the realm of uh, technology we think of, is the opportunities that a cap-and-trade system would give to reduce emissions um, efficiently in a least-cost way, including the emissions that are coming from our forests. So not from a natural living forest, but when a forest is burned, we put a tremendous amount of CO2 into the air. And many of you probably know that 20% of the world's current emissions come from burning our living rainforests. And so um, while you probably also know that China is in the process of passing the United States or may just have passed the United States in total emissions, we're number one and number two, a dubious distinction. Number three and number four are Brazil and Indonesia. Just from, the, uh, well, 70 to 80% of their emissions from burning, by, um, burning forests. So in a cap-and-trade system that was international in scope, um, you would not pay these countries on the promise of cutting emissions, nor do I believe you should pay them for a particular project um, but you could set up a system, which has been proposed now by some of the NGOs in Brazil, you could set up a system where it's nationwide, where you look at the whole nation through satellites and you monitor, are they able to get that deforestation rate and therefore their emissions down, and then compensate them after performance for actually reducing their emissions. And by doing that, we would get money uh, to these developing countries, um, and the atmosphere would be very grateful to get as many reductions as we can for whatever dollars we spend. So we do talk about that in the book. We also talk about biofuels. Um, biofuels is an interesting area because right now we not only have the global warming problem, we also in America have our uh, balance of payments, our deficit with the rest of the world, uh, and we have the the problem that many of these dollars are going to regimes that are not particularly friendly toward us. So there's some interesting folks working on that. Jack Newman from uh, Amaris um, are very busy um, bioengineering yeast to solve this problem. Now, they've already figured out how to get an engine, a bioengineered yeast reprogrammed to produce the cure for malaria, artemisinin which um, malaria had become resistant to quinine. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation want to distribute this new drug all over the world. It's very expensive to refine it the traditional way. And these guys at Amaris have figured out how to, make, how to get yeast to make this drug. It will save uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation $200 million, what they've invented. They have a track record here. And by the way, they've licensed it to a company that will distribute it in Africa for free. For their next act, having cured malaria, um, they, they plan to get the yeast to uh, make gasoline, diesel fuel, and jet fuel. 
Now, they're aiming to get the price below $2 a gallon by 2010. I'm not going to stand here and tell you they're going to be able to do it. I'm going to tell you they have a track record. They're aiming to do it. And uh, the interesting thing about them and the other entrepreneurs, if we give them the added incentive that you figure out ways to lower the carbon emissions from cars or from generating electricity, and you will be the next Bill Gates, you will be the next Steve Apple, we will give you a billion dollars, then we take this incredibly powerful force that has been so powerful it's gotten us into this fix, and we use capitalism, we use the profit motive, we use that force to dig ourselves out of this hole. This is a big problem, and, I, and we're going to have to use the most powerful forces we can to get us out of the fix we're in. And I am happy to, to say that if Amherst can figure it out um, under a cap-and-trade system, they could become you know, a very, very profitable company. Even without a cap-and-trade system, they're going to be profitable. Of course, the problem with Amherst's invention um, is the yeast would be making this stuff out of sugar, and we all know that right now the price of food worldwide is going up as we have this ethanol craze created by Congress, which you know, has picked winners and losers. Um, they've picked conventional ethanol made out of corn. Um, we really do not want Congress picking winners and losers, in my opinion. Uh, they don't tend to pick very well. We want to set up a performance metric, a metric that whoever can figure out how to get carbon out uh, benefits. It's questionable what sort of benefit you get from conventional ethanol. And then we will get truly better choices. Um, but there's another company we talk about, our book, Verinium. Now, in this new space, interesting things are happening where people are coming from British Petroleum to work uh, for uh, Craig Venter, um, to work for um, companies uh, like Verenium has actually hired the head, former head brewmaster from Anheuser-Busch to help them uh, digest um, things like wood chips, leftover wood waste. That, so we're not competing with what can be used as food in order to make f fuel. Uh, their first plan is going to go in in Louisiana. Uh, that's where the former brewmaster will uh, operate the plant. And they will uh, be taking sugar cane, the leftover fiber, after the, sh the cane juice has been squeezed out and digest that fiber into fuel. Um, a very promising development. By the way, they've merged with a company called Diversa, which has been bioprospecting around the world for extremophiles, these organisms that can live where nothing else can live, um, such as the... Uh, volcanoes in Siberia or the deep sea ocean vents and figure out how do these organisms live there? How is it that they turn toxic materials into food and drive their metabolisms that way and learn from these critters? And they do more commonplace things like uh, go into the guts of termites and scrape out the enzymes and figure out what is the enzyme that allows a termite to eat our houses. Um, this is useful, especially now with the, uh, the pine beetle deforestating major swaths of the West. If we could take that wood waste and turn it into fuel, um, we have unfortunately, tragically, uh, 
due to the fact we haven't had a hard freeze and now over a decade in the West, uh, we have a lot of material that could be used this way. There's other things we talk about in the book, um, such as cleaning up coal. Um, We at EDF have been in the forefront at trying to prevent new coal plants from being built, like uh, in the case with TXU. But we also believe that we have an existing capacity of coal-fired power plants. Half of our electricity in this country comes from burning coal. How do we deal with that? In this Bay Area, where so many of the inventors that we profile live, Ellie Gall, an Israeli engineer, has been working at SRI in Menlo Park to figure out a way to take chilled ammonia and use it to grab onto CO2 that's bubbled through it out of the smokestacks of, from the smokestacks of power plants. They've uh, already built um, one facility. He's licensed his technology, I should say, to Alstom, the big French a company that develops uh, pollution control equipment. They've built a facility with We Energy in Wisconsin. Uh, now they've signed up with America's largest coal-burning utility, AEP, American Electric Power, to install a facility at, on the Mountaineer plant in West Virginia. Um, and then there's some other more um, far-off things, but that may also be practical in the area of cleaning up coal. Michael Trachtenberg is a a Harvard Medical School uh, trained doctor and now works in Princeton. Uh, He's been hired by NASA to figure out how do you shuttle CO2 out of a spacesuit and using the same enzymes that we all have in our brains to take the CO2 out where it's not healthy for our brains to have too much of it. Um, He's rolled that into... um, liquid-filled membranes and is testing, bubbling the gases from our smokestacks through that. All of these inventors, I don't know which one will work. Many of them will work, but the idea is let's make it very lucrative and get all of this innovation bubbling because that is what we need to do. We need to reduce emissions by at least 80% in this country. We need every innovation that we can get so that's what the book's about. It's about Bernie Carl and folks like Bernie Carl. Um, it's about us, our, our talent, our genius, our resourcefulness. It's about the need for government to fire that starting pistol to start the greatest and most important race of our time, I think, of any time, because it really is a race against time. It is a race that would generate huge number of jobs, vast wealth, and a race that will prove that we can save ourselves from ourselves. We can take some questions. Join me in thanking Fred Krupp. You are listening to Fred Krupp, president of the Environmental Defense Fund and author of a new book entitled Earth, the Sequel, The Race to Reinvent Energy and Stop Global Warming. So, Fred, we have a, a bunch of questions, so uh, let's, uh, let's start in. Um, obviously, the question on the minds of many people is, even if we get our act together in, in this country and, and Europe, they're farther ahead of us already, um, what about Asia, China, and India? They seem to be on a trajectory to greatly surpass our wasteful habits and uh, 
how can we get them, after we get our act together, how can we get them to uh, follow suit? That's a great question, Kerry. The um, one thing that we need to remember is even though the emissions of China are now about equal to ours, uh, what causes the problem of global warming is the inventory of these gases in the atmosphere. And we still have gases up there that were put out by the first Model T. What that means is that while our current emissions are equal, uh, America and the European Union uh, are responsible for a disproportionate amount of the thermal blanket that's warming the planet. Therefore, it's critical, I think, that we, um, we lead and we show that it's possible to have a modern economy with much less emissions. Second, um, when we put these incentives in place and develop these lower-cost technologies because these technologies go to scale and the price goes down, they become new options for China. Third, Right now, world opinion is focused on the United States as an outlaw because we did not sign or ratify the Kyoto Protocol. Once we go forward and pass a nationwide cap-and-trade law, we have new credibility to um, press the debate uh, that right now we don't have. We cannot ask China and India to do something we haven't asked. But more than that, the world focus of intention right now is on us. Once we do the right thing, the world focus, world opinion focuses on China and India. And fifth and finally, in the Lieberman-Warner Act, which thanks to the leadership of your senator uh, here in California, Barbara Boxer, has been voted out of the Senate Environment Committee, and, we're, and Majority Leader Reid has scheduled a vote for the week of June 2nd on this bill. Uh, in this law, there's a provision that if China and these other countries do not take a commitment, do not cap their emissions within a few years after we cap ours, then we'd ha we'd, they'd face consequences. There'd be a levelized playing field. And the way that would work would be if after that five- or seven-year time period expires, they want to export steel to us or another carbon-intensive good, they would have to, if they haven't taken a cap, package with that steel some legitimate carbon reduction um, that was certified by the international community and scientists as being real, they would have to package that with their product in order to export it, and that would levelize the playing field, and that would be a big inducement to get them to, to make the commitment the same as, as we had a few years earlier. That's a, that's a great answer. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned the, the pivotal role of a cap-and-trade mechanism, putting a, an absolute cap on carbon and then cr letting the market forces respond to that with technologies to make it possible to reduce uh, the carbon. Um, but what other – there are quite several questions here relating to uh, public policy in Washington. One of them is what other policy initiatives might make sense uh, in addition to cap-and-trade or perhaps even instead of it, a carbon tax, investment tax credit, feed-in tariffs – uh, funding basic R&D, and so forth. And, and then another question, once we figure out what those policies are, how do we, how, what do we do as a, you know, politically as a, as a citizenry to make sure that the policy gets done right? And um, uh, what, about, what, do, what do we do about lobbyists? And, uh, you know, is, is there any role in here for electoral finance reform to just to make sure that we can actually get this stuff done? Long question. Sorry about that. Well, that's a lot of questions, um, but 
Let me answer them succinctly and in order, um, in some order anyway. There, there are other things that need to be done other than cap and trade. For instance, uh, money for R&D. In this country last year, we spent a total of a billion and change on renewable energy for a year, $1 billion. That's the same amount as Exxon's revenues are in a day. Um, the amount we're spending as a country needs to be ramped up significantly in pre-commercial research and development for all of these technologies. We defunded geothermal energy, which is why I can tell the story about Bernie Carl. The government wasn't really doing anything in the area for years, despite this as a clean, cheap, and available source. So that we need to do other things besides cap and trade. I emphasize cap and trade because the most important thing you can do is put that limit into place and create the overall economic incentives. And, and that's why if we could pick just one thing to do, you know, it would be the biggest thing. In terms of feed-in tariffs, these have been useful in Germany and Europe, um, and sometimes they require customers to pay 50 cents a kilowatt hour in order to, um, you know, if solar energy comes into their community. It's very high electric prices, but it has gotten solar energy and wind turbines to scale and therefore reduce the cost. But it has also caused solar cells to be put in place where there's just not very much sunlight and wind turbines to be put in place where there's just not very much wind. So we're not getting all the reductions we should because of these ideas. It's kind of a clumsy policy approach. I think cap-and-trade does the, the same thing but more effectively. The last two parts of your question, Carrie, there was a lot of questions and buried in there, was um, one part was about lobbyists, one part was about tax. Um, the lobbyist thing, lo lobbyists are going to look at this as an opportunity to put the fix in for their technology, whether it's corn ethanol or anything else. And that's why if we can keep this a performance metric, not have the government picking technologies, which, which is where they reward lobbyists, make it performance-based, we will get a much better answer. And in terms of carbon taxes, it's a very appealing idea because you make the pollution more expensive. But when we say what we really need to do is put a price on carbon or a carbon tax, which sounds a lot like what I say, but it's a little bit different because we can satisfy that demand Politicians can satisfy that demand by putting a very low price on carbon or a very low tax into place. A carbon cap-and-trade system gives you something a carbon tax doesn't give you. That's the mandate, the guarantee that pollution goes down because the government says you as a utility cannot emit pollution beyond so many tons, whereas a carbon tax just says, it's like a cigarette tax, you want to keep smoking, just keep paying us. So that's why a a carbon cap, if, if the problem we want to solve is not raising money but lowering pollution, we want a declining cap, a mandatory limit. Um, you can still raise money with a carbon cap and trade system. You can just auction part or all of the allowances so uh, you can accomplish the same thing. Oh, that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, how about the three uh, presidential contenders? Uh, when you look at their, and I know you must have looked uh, at uh, their policies or, or lack thereof about uh, energy policy and climate change. What are the, uh, what are the various features of those three uh, positions? Well, Kerry, the, um, you know, all three are 
have a completely different position on this than uh, the current president, President Bush. Um, it is a, any of them would be a sea change from the current administration. So I know all of us in this room are supporting probably different candidates for different reasons, and there's many issues from the war in Iraq to um, climate change that will go into making each of our own choices when we get into the voting booth. But on this issue, um, Senator McCain, uh, Hillary uh, Clinton, Barack Obama, all have been for a carbon cap and trade system, and they've all been for it for a very long time. So um, there are nuances of differences, but um, uh, we can expect leadership out of a new White House um, that, frankly, we tragically have not had on this issue. Um, Thank you. We had a speaker here a few weeks ago by the name of Peter Barnes, who's with the uh, Tomales Bay Institute, and and he's approaching the the, the perspective with a with a social justice perspective in mind and proposing an auction system where which would actually raise money where companies would have to pay for uh, you know for the pay money to the government for the uh, for the carbon that's uh, emitted and then that that revenue then would be cycled back to either reduce taxes or to actually provide a direct uh, stipend to lower and middle income uh, people. Is there any room for a a wise policy for that kind of mechanism? Yes. Cap and trade um, is the overall mechanism. The – how – if you're going to give companies permission to put pollution into the air and – but that's going to decline over time, what that means is there just has to be a declining number of permission slips um, over time. So they – those permission slips can be handed out by being given to companies that currently uh, pollute, or they can all be auctioned from the get-go, or you can have some hybrid where some of them are given out and some of them are auctioned. So there's many different competing considerations here. Um, The advantage of auctioning all of them is that the government gets to raise a lot of revenue, and there's a lot of reasons where I think we will have a 100% auction system in time. Whether we start with a 100% auction system or not, I don't know. In places like Indiana, which now get 90% of their electricity from coal, if you go to 100% auction initially, uh, the concern there from um, ratepayers is going to be, well, hold on here. The utility has to convert to a different type of utility, either capture the CO2 or make a solar facility or wind power. So the utility is going to have to invest that and get that money from the ratepayers, and the utility is going to have to buy the permits to put the pollution into the sky. Is that making the customer pay twice? I think as a practical matter, what's going to happen, though, Kerry, is kind of a prediction, is we will have a carbon cap-and-trade bill in the next 18 to 24 months because all three presidential candidates are for it. Whether you in this room engage or not, will make a big difference because it will determine how strong the system is, especially um, in California where you have Nancy Pelosi and Barbara Boxer in key positions. Um, the engagement of folks all around the country is very important, definitely in California too. And, and the likelihood in my judgment is we'll have some hybrid system. In the beginning, some of the credits will be given away um, to compensate for the fact that some regions are burning so much coal 
And but over time, we will, and we'll have a, some of the credits auctioned from the get-go. And over time, it will shift to 100 percent auction. How fast it shifts is going to be uh, what they're arguing about. Yeah, great, great answer. Uh, staying with that social justice uh, theme for a second, as I was reading your book, which by the way is excellent, or everyone listening. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. Uh, <laughs> Um, it occurred to me that you're, you're, uh, obviously you're stressing very much the role of the private sector, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, technologists, and so forth in finding solutions under this cap-and-trade market uh, system. But I kept wondering, okay, we have in this country a problem of uh, maldistribution of income and wealth already where the rich are getting even more and the poor are getting even less than they've always had. And won't this ex- exacerbate that? I mean, uh, we're going to be taking it even more of our collective efforts as a society and putting them behind a, a capitalist uh, uh, approach. What, what is the prospect for salvaging some kind of social justice out of this situation? Well, that's a very important question, and um, there's no question that it, it, in the design of the system – um, all Americans and all constituencies need to participate, and they all need to be educated about cap and trade and how it works, because we can take revenues from an auction and use it to retrain workers that have been mining coal. We can take revenues in, au- in an auction and train people to uh, install, um, you know, energy efficiency measures in homes or or insulation. There's a lot of things we can do with the revenue, so. You know, I welcome the question. I think everyone has to engage. Internationally, let me give you an example where we have the same questions come up of social inequity in an international agreement. And we've been very concerned that in a carbon cap-and-trade system, um, will the poorest of the poor have access to these credits? And so we've partnered at EDF with the Grameen Bank, which is, uh, you know, famous, of course, for micro-lending. And they have helped us to understand that carbon credits could actually finance these uh, digesters in Bangladesh. And now we have hundreds, maybe over a 1,000 digesters that have been put in place. And the way they work is the community residents um, take the uh, manure from their livestock and animals, in some case even um, human waste, put it in a digester. It collects the methane. It burns and destroys the methane to generate uh, light and, in some cases, electricity. The carbon credits are generated because methane is 20 times more powerful, a greenhouse gas, than carbon dioxide. And those credits are used to finance uh, getting these digesters in place in the first place. So there's villagers that have never had light at night that now have it thanks to uh, the carbon credits here. So... When we design the system, we need to create create it in a way that communities um, can also participate and poor people, the things that they can do to help. Same thing, farmers in China, AIG, has just purchased $2 million worth of credits on a demonstration basis. They get no credit under the Kyoto Protocol, which doesn't deal adequately with uh, land basis. But AIG has just purchased um, $2 million worth of sequestration credits from farmers in western China that have changed their practices to go to no-till or to plant plants that are soaking carbon out of the sky. And these are very, very poor folks who suddenly are able to participate in helping solve the world's problem. So both internationally 
and domestically, we need to make sure the system is designed in an equitable way. Thank you. Um, how about the issue of water? It seems like, as I was reading your book and as all this reading I've been doing, uh, water is a part of every solution, cooling this, uh, creating steam and whatnot. And uh, this past summer we had a program on water and one of the big mess, a whole month-long program. And one of the issues there is that it seems like we're going to run out of fresh water pretty soon on a global basis, making it very hard to to uh, to accomplish some of these things, especially biofuels and so forth, which we acquire a lot of water. So, so how does that figure into the equation? Well, unfortunately, global warming, as uh, you all know, is going to exacerbate the water shortage. The snowpacks in the Sierras is predicted to go down uh, by more than two-thirds. So uh, it is a huge problem, and it's only going to get bigger. We have to use water very, very efficiently um, as we are turning around the global warming challenge. And one of the things that we have proposed there as well is getting the incentives right. So everyone on the planet should have ample water to uh, drinking water, bathing water, washing their clothes. But beyond that, for those who want to fill up swimming pools or use the water in industrial uses, we really do need to create a system that penalizes waste, puts a price on these uh, large uses of water. And if we do that, we will use water much more efficiently because in many countries, including our own, uh, we use water very inefficiently, particularly in agriculture, because there's, there's no price, there's no incentive. It's just radically subsidized. Right. Is there, I'll just read this one straight without any editorializing. Is there even an iota of truth in the phrase clean coal? No. There is uh, no truth in the phrase clean coal, um, certainly the way it's been used in the past, unless you're capturing and um, storing the CO2 from coal, how could it possibly be clean when it's creating the biggest problem that you know, humanity has ever confronted, maybe alongside nuclear war? Uh, and there are many problems with mining coal, mountaintop removal, the acidification of uh, streams, uh, the subsidence of areas where they've gone in and taken layers of coal out from under the uh, surface. Um, all of those problems we need to be very aware of, and we need strong regulations um, you know, involving uh, all those problems with coal. Having said that, though, um, half of the United States' electricity is produced by coal, so we need to clean up the existing capacity because we can't get the new solar on t in line fast enough for the reductions that the scientists tell us we need. And so it won't be clean coal, but if we strip the sulfur and the mercury and the nitrogen and the carbon dioxide out of coal, um, it'll be much safer for the planet. Right, and you deal with that at some length in the book. Um, chapter 8. Right. <laughs> Reconsidering Coal, I think, is the name of that chapter. But one of the you things... You did read the book thoroughly. I Thank did. you, Gary. Um, one of the th things that makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck uh, about that whole issue is... I, I do need a haircut. Uh, is um, the idea of pumping vast amounts of carbon dioxide down deep into the earth where it becomes uh, dissolved in water way down there. And it presumably it would stay there for many centuries and safely and no problem and so forth. 
But boy, that, that the law of unintended consequences and Murphy's law and everything are start uh, ring bells in my uh, my mind when I hear about that. Well, you know, you should be concerned. You know, we need strong regulations to make sure it stays down there. The the thing is that whether it's that or generating energy from the ocean, which also has unintended consequences. Um, the time has passed where we can say, well, we're, we're a little concerned about that, we're a little concerned about this. The time has come where we in the environmental community need to shoulder the heavier burden of saying, we are concerned about how do you keep that carbon dioxide underground, or we are concerned about windmills in, in the ocean and what they'll do out there. But we've got to figure out a way to make enough of these things happen, or else the future will be very much doom and gloom. So we've got to be constructive. And I, I, I agree with that. Now, how about, as I was, one of the things we're concerned about as a, you know, on, globally is the idea of genet- genetically modified organisms and GMO foods and so forth. And as I was reading Chapter uh, uh, 4. <laughs> yes, about uh, amorous. yeah. Uh, A lot of that is based on uh, uh, bioengineering uh, uh, bacteria and viruses and so forth to do the work for us of transferring, transforming uh, substances from one form to another that make them better for energy. And should we be concerned about the the potential for genetically modifying uh, on such a vast scale uh, substances which then might get into the general uh, environment? Well, I, th- I know there's some people that um, are just philosophically or even religiously opposed to anything in this area. That's not the position of EDF. Our position has been the government needs to have a strong regulatory hand in this stuff. And one of the reasons I think there's been such a backlash in Europe about American genetically modified organisms is there's been no regulatory structure in the United States. Only recently, um, the semblance of regulations in this area, but still uh, no laws that that govern this and make sure that when these uh, organisms are proposed, that there's a, a real screening process of which uses can get out, which uses can be dangerous, and which uses aren't. So when you don't have government playing that function I understand why people who are not uh, religiously opposed to these things have deep concerns, and I count myself as one of them. But I wrote about it in the book because we, we need to explore every available option, and some of these options just are not dangerous at all. And so assuming we have a new administration that puts in place the proper regulations, every one of these ideas should need to be permitted, um, but many of them should be allowed to proceed, in my view. Okay. Now, the, one, uh, here's an audience member who's concerned about the timeline, and the question is, is there time for all these technologies to come online before it's too late? And this, uh, this uh, uh, questioner uh, cites the example of Italy is going backwards. They announced today they are reverting to coal. I, I didn't hear that myself. And Russia has announced a, a plan to close a nuclear plant and replace it with coal. Is this going backwards? Or in other words, is this a danger sign about uh, the timeline? Yes. Um, I did see the article about Italy, and it, it is does definitely raise concerns. Um, the initial 
law that the United States passes will not drive our emissions to zero and certainly won't drive our emissions down as soon as I would like to. Um, we need to get the strongest law. We need to get a law that comports with what the scientists say is necessary to get going. But we also need to remember that people overestimate what the cost of all these things will do. All of the models, the economic models, don't really understand that once you introduce a profit motive, uh, the system reacts in a dynamic way and people develop new technologies and the costs are lower than we predict. The economic models that look at costs and that frighten the politicians and the public, these economical models basically assume almost no innovation. And yet America has been innovating time and time again. And so we need to get going. And my belief is when we get going with a strong law, as strong as we can get, the uh, at least 20% reductions by 2020 and 80% by 2050. But when we get a law like that in place, we'll find out very quickly that we can achieve reductions at, at costs that are lower than have been predicted. And that will allow us to go back to Congress and uh, revise the laws and more science comes out and shows that we need to reduce emissions faster. That's what happened with acid rain, where the first cut was 50%, and then three years ago, another 70% was ordered, and very few of us even heard about it because the controversy had been taken out of the issue because entrepreneurs had made the reduction so cheap. We can repeat that history if we get the law right. Thank you. Um, Environmental Defense Fund has established a sustainability consulting practice serving Fortune 500 clients, is what this questioner is saying, and uh, that's great. The question is, why would a client retain environmental defense rather than an Accenture or a McKinsey or one of those, and uh, how do you make sure that you're not a party to greenwashing in this work? Well, that's, that is a good question, and it's something that we've thought about ever since our first work with McDonald's. Um, because there are companies definitely understanding that good PR, especially now in 2008, can come from working with an environmental group or doing something that supposedly looks green. So with McDonald's, um, after I flew out to Oak Brook, Illinois, and uh, said that they could do better and we'd be willing to partner with them, they proposed an agreement to retain us and to pay us. And when we said, no, we're not going to take your money, um, we're not going to take any money from corporations to do this. We're going to be supported by our members to do this work because otherwise there's a conflict of interest. The negotiation stalled. They wanted us um, to initially to sign an agreement where we'd be compensated. And this was kind of a big issue. But ultimately they said, okay, you know, we can see you're not going to change your mind. So we signed an agreement that provided they would not reimburse us even for our travel expenses. We would not receive free food in their restaurants. And what they got from us was way more credibility than they would get from Accenture or any consulting firm because we were independent to write any report we wanted. And it's led to wonderful work with McDonald's on antibiotics, as you've mentioned, Kerry. It's led to wonderful work with FedEx. And one of the things they get when they work with us is an independent agent that has the credibility of an independent agent. And we've been able to produce some real wonderful results. You know, uh, we now have two people working in Bentonville, and uh, Walmart has the power, if they so choose, uh, to have an enormous effect in China and elsewhere around the globe. 
And so I'm excited about that work. Um, and we are supplying them ideas much the way that PG&E does when they have their people in Bentonville. We'll see what happens, but I'm hoping um, that we'll all be reading um, that you know Walmart does a ser- series of good things. They have already done some very good things. Yeah, I've been very impressed. I went to a, a talk the other day by the chief uh, sustainability guy from Walmart over at uh, Cal, Berkeley, and was very, very favorably impressed. Um, I had an experience recently that I'd like to share with you, and I, I got an I read an article in Fortune magazine about this local company. Unfortunately, I can't remember their name. That said, uh, if you want to if you want to investigate solar putting solar panels on your roof, just go to this website, and uh, they use the uh, Google Earth uh, mechanism. So. I went on there and, and it said, uh, I told him my address and everything, and it said, is this your house? And it showed a picture of my house, and I said, yeah, that's, that's the house. And then it said, well, how much energy did you use last year? So I pulled out my PG&E bill, and I told him how many kilowatt hours. And, um, and then we'll get right back to you. And sure enough, the next day I had this bid for a solar energy installation on my roof and the map that showed where it would be and how much it would cost how much rebates I'd get from the government, and how much savings then that would amount to over 25 years with a graph of how those savings would play out. And as a professor of marketing, I have to say, I just thought that was completely fantastic. Now, unfortunately, I'm doing a commercial for them, but I can't remember their name. But... uh, so that leads to this question from this, uh, uh, this questioner, and that is, can't consumers jumpstart some of the change in this process? Because you've made it totally clear, and other, uh, other people have also, that change must involve um, the government, uh, put the rules in place, uh, caps, uh, and so forth, subsidies for certain kinds of development, and so forth. But how much of this progress that we need to make can come from the initiative of consumers in terms of their own behavior as consumers, and then secondarily, their, their behavior as uh, voters? Well, that's a really important question, Kerry. And one, you know, it really goes to the essence of why I wanted to get this message out and worked with Miriam to, you know, write this book. The... Um, I don't think that voluntary action alone is going to solve this problem, but I do think that voluntary action is really, really important. Voluntary consumer action won't solve this problem, but voluntary citizen action actually will. We have to demand of our politicians that they put a system like this in place. But we can buy the most fuel-efficient cars. We can get out of cars to the extent that public transit and other mobility options are available. We can insulate our homes. We can buy front-loading washing machines that use so much less energy uh, than the top loaders. Uh, There's lots of things individuals can do. But we're at a point now with a Senate about to vote uh, the first week in June and legislation now going to be passed, the shape of it being determined between now and the next 18 to 24 months, where the most important thing that we need to do as individuals is participate in the political process and demand that our elected officials enact a mandatory system that squeezes this pollution out of our emission stream. Um, and everything else that we do is important and can jumpstart things, and it's good you know, to go out there and buy Priuses and other fuel-efficient cars. Unfortunately, there's still not many alternatives. But the most important thing we can do um, is engage in our democracy.
Um, and there's a question I meant to ask you earlier, and that is you talk about coal, you talk about various versions of solar, uh, bio uh, sources of energy, and so forth. How about nuclear? In your book, you only talked about nuclear energy in a peripheral way. Can that be looked at as an important part of the solution? Yeah, well, the Environmental Defense Fund EDF's position on nuclear um, is that, you know, the global warming problem is so serious that we need to consider all options, including nuclear. But we're not ready at the moment to say we should build a whole new fleet of nuclear power plants because we still have the problems of nuclear, like what do you do with the waste? We're still storing it in front of each plant. Will it be cost competitive? I heard... uh, uh, Bill McKibben speak not too long ago, and his answer to the same question was, you know, the, the risks of global warming are certain. The risks of nuclear are not certain. So nuclear absolutely should be considered, but it's just too expensive so far. You can get a lot more reductions in other ways. I'm happy to let the market determine what's the best answer, but I want to make sure with nuclear that the nuclear industry figures out what it's going to do with the waste, how it's going to make sure these facilities are safe. Um, we will engage constructively to help because I would like to see that option on the table, but not right now I'm not um, convinced by the answers I get. I would say also, Kerry, that um, it's critically important um, that uh, you know everyone needs to answer these questions for themselves and, as I said a minute ago, engage in the political process Uh, One thing I want to add is when we engage in the political process, linking ourselves up with groups like Environmental Defense Fund, the Sierra Club, Natural Resources Defense Council, the World Resources Institute, there's a lot of options. But um, these are all tools and information tools that can help us learn enough to be engaged as citizens. And by supporting EDF or these other groups, you can also be part of an effort to change the world um, it's something that I'm so glad, um, you know, that I'm part of it. I feel privileged to work with the people I do, and I hope um, now when it's just the future of the world is at stake, um, I hope you'll join me in the effort. You've been listening to a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Uh, our guest is Fred Krupp, who is president of the Environmental Defense Fund and is author of a new book entitled Earth, the Sequel, the race to reinvent energy and stop global warming. Thank you for joining us today, and please join me in thanking Fred for his remarks. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club, observing 100 years plus of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.